Welcome to the Beth and Kelly Show, a weekly Facebook Live conversation between Beth Fortune and Kelly Klingen. That's me. And we've made it into a podcast. Beth Fortune currently serves as Education Director at Wintergrass, the National American String Teachers Association Board, and Chair of the National Council for Orchestral Education. I currently serve as Education Director at Jazz Ed the Washington president at Jazz Education Network and Jazz Curriculum Officer for Washington Music Educators Association. We have a platform and we really want to leverage it for positive change. Please hit us up. Let's have a conversation and uh, let's move our practice as music educators forward. It's another Friday. It is two Fridays in a row that Kelly and I have rallied to the Zoom. It's a miraculous situation. It's it's miraculous, but this one is going to be a good one. Um, So I hope everyone has their sparkling water and they are ready for a good show. I'm so excited. It was during our um, foundations camp where we teach a hundred begin total beginners fourth through eighth grade um in a week some jazz music it's already like intensity intensities big time and <laughs> 20 teachers our whole staff and it's the first summer camp that we do at jazz ed and in that summer camp i discovered on the first day that we had three students with some special needs that were very unfamiliar to me and we're not disclosed by the family. And um, it was my job to help our teachers who were also feeling ill-equipped mm-hmm. to navigate the scenario. And I went on that first night on a major Google deep dive and discovered, I mean, obviously I didn't discover, <laughs> I stumbled upon and was so happy to see um, this organization called String Rise. And I texted Beth and I was like, bro, this is cool. Does this exist for band also? P.S. Let's get this person on our show. And here we are. That's right. Our, yeah, this is Nicole Melrose, and we would love for you to introduce yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much for having me on. Um, as I was, uh, you all know, I'm founder of um, String Rise. And, um, you know, really the story starts all the way back to um, my own why of why I started this goes all the way back to when I was 11 years old. And um, I had grow, grew up in a home um, with a lot of trauma in it and I'm first generation. So um, my family um, are all came to the States actually from Lebanon. So they fled oh, that cool. civil war. Um, and so upon coming over, um, you know, and trying to acclimate, you know, essentially to this world, I was born here. Um, but we weren't talking about like a better future. We were very much stuck in trauma loop in our home. And I got this letter in the middle school that said, Hey, come out, try out all the instruments. Um, you know, at this, and the, and the teacher was teaching band and orchestra at the time. And I had decided that I was going to play flute and I'd zeroed in on that. And that was my decision as I was leaving the teacher tapped my shoulder and she said, Hey, did you try the violin at all? And I looked at her as if that was the most nerdy, hideous thing that she could ever ask me to do. It was like, why in the world would I ever touch the violin? And she put it in my hands and immediately I went up to the G string and it was huge sound. It was enormous. And she was like, I, you have to play violin. She was like, you're kind you, you don't even realize that you are 100% a violinist come to my office and sign that sign up. And how many times have I done that to a kid? And yes, it's too? that's oh a gosh. special gift that music yeah. teachers have. Okay. Yeah. That music teacher rules. Okay. Sorry. Yes. Ahead, right. No, right. But it's it's the ability to see a student before yes. they know. It's it's and I in my in my workshops I call this casting a vision for their lives. And so oh, yes. um, you know, so that, so she was casting this vision for my life and, and I get chills thinking about it and I get emotional when I do, when I talk about this part, because, um, what she did was set me on for a trajectory that saved my life, that opened the door. And what was well, essentially, I knew at 15 
um, that I was going to start programs for kids like myself, kids who didn't have access, that were low income, that had trauma, um, you know, that are experiencing, you know, specific sets of challenges on a day to day basis. And I said, I'm going to somehow grow up and start a program and do work that mirrors what I felt like that, that teacher had done for me, but I didn't have the language at 15 to parse it out. So I was 11, I'm 41 now. So for 30 years, the work that I did, and even when I started the programming that I'll back up to, my work was unfolding and trying to name what the power was that happened in that beginning strings classroom for me during those three years, that it created such a change in my life. And so at 30, I had this like very sudden feeling of like, now's the time to go start this programming, like it's time. And I literally walked into a school. I just said, I want to start a program. Um, your kids are 98% low income. Um, they're, they are first generation. You know, mostly I've studied the demographics. They're Hispanic. And I want to be a part of the school and bring music education. It's the closest that I had to my own story um, that I could bring. And so they, they just gave me a room. Um, and they were like, yeah, start a program. And people were like, you can't just start a program. <laughs> and it was like, well, I'm going to watch me. do and, it actually. And yeah. I did. And I did. And out of that, my, and I'll say this, my mission was um, to go in and to give students who didn't have a voice the power of sound. Because the thing I talk about in my work is that sound is a justice issue. That sound is an equity issue. And so for me, and as we know, as music educators and teaching strings in particular, that getting a beautiful sound out of a string instrument in the beginning stages is difficult. And I specialize in beginning strings specifically because of um, the, the technique and the process of giving students that power early on to, for retention, for you know healing modalities and lots of different things. So my motive for starting that program was to give the kids the the power of like their own sound and to play from a stage that could protest anything that's coming at them to re like ignite a new narrative in their life yeah. and to give them choices essentially and yeah. so what we were able to do was circumvent systems when they were taking tests and the fourth grade scores where they were saying well your reading scores are too low so you can't get into this magna art school we would say we'll hear them play we would literally would write letters and advocate for the students. And then it got to the point where, so 100% of these kids were getting in, we were advocating for them, regardless of their scores, they were getting in based on their ability to play. Um, so we were making a way for students who would have been excluded from a system, like because of this new power they had in their hands. And That's it, one thing I was going to just like talk about is like, when you said that sound is a justice issue, I like had this realization that getting a good sound on a stringed instrument or even like maybe even a band a instrument, I don't know, maybe not as much band, <laughs> but getting a good sound on a stringed instrument mm -hmm. is a lot of times reserved for kids who are privileged enough to like their parents supplement with private lessons and yeah. stuff like that at those young ages. Right. And it's like that, that's true. It is right. a justice issue. It is. I literally never considered that just like that voice itself is a justice issue. Yeah, it is. Right. And that means that high level like teaching and high level pedagogy um, and 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 holding students to their highest path and success is a justice issue because you can move a class along really quickly, like in the beginning phases, if you have sequencing that's geared towards the sound production. And that's what we do at String Rise. And essentially, that was my role. As I said, you know, do I want to become a nonprofit at, and, and take this thing as a nonprofit or do I want to do you know, something different. And I entertained the nonprofit thing for a while. We I led that programming for eight years using fiscal agents because I wasn't sure of what. And then it was became very clear to me that I wanted to start something that was a social entrepreneurship. And I wanted to take 
to create the products that I'd used to create powerful sound and to somehow create something that would be like look nicer than what I was using in those um, my classrooms and to create something that could be replicated on a large scale model. Um, and so that was the birth of String Rise and that came about, my twins were born um, in 2020 and I had started the process of um, developing the box instrument kits and all that behind the scenes. Then when they were born, we were in the pandemic. Um, after we got all settled, I was able to finish that. And so we just launched only two years ago, um, String Rise, but it's it has been a part of this lifelong trajectory since I was 11. So that's it in a nutshell um, to give you the story. Yeah. Um, when you- I was, when I was Googling and finding string rise, there were materials that seemed very well developed, um, not just materials, but like professional development offerings. And I would love for our audience to know what those things are, how they access them, how those materials would like be important for our classrooms. Yeah, yeah. So we um, we've been providing PD for a while, but we were able to um, expand on our offerings this year because we had some really cool things happen at Asta where we had some educators come and I'll talk about them a little bit. And they said, hey, we want to be more part of your work. And I was like, well, let's let's see what we can make happen. Um, And they have been doing this work. And so um, part of the, if you go to our website, it's just stringrise.com. So it's like sunrise, but stringrise. And um, you'll see, we see, you'll see that we offer professional development in several areas. So we focus on um, just the beginning string piece. Like how do you sequence in your classroom um, you know, how do you get a powerful sound out of your beginners? So we have a bunch of sequencing and things that we do around that. Then we focus on trauma. And that is something that comes out of my own story. And I have even a very personal blog that I wrote about my own story with trauma that I wanted to share so that we could normalize that conversation and showcase the power of music to heal trauma. So we have a whole series um, of, of PD and development on trauma-informed. And then when I was at ASTA, um, Annie Ray, who is in um, Annandale, Virginia, she came to me because she had used my box violins and box, box viola, cello, a whole thing. She saw, and this is what I love about the products is when I put them out into the world, I had my desire, but the world saw other facets to them. Mm. And so when Annie saw these kits um, when they were released two years ago, she had been wanting to start an inclusion program for, for students that had disability. And she saw these instruments as the perfect way to give students access and to create sequencing um, so that they develop the skills to be able to get to a real instrument, um, essentially. And so out of that, she created essentially a toolbox. And so she came to me at Aston and said, I, I want to you know, do some stuff with String Rise. And I said, OK, well, let's get together. Let's chat, see how we can make it happen. And out of that, we launched the disability and inclusion piece. And we brought on Dr. Annalisa Chang as well. Um, has focused on, she does a lot of work around ableism um, and presenting uh, on this topic for different things. So we thought, okay, let's create a series of PD, you know, that that would would allow educators to choose what works best for their setting. So I bring the trauma piece and in, uh, Annie Ray brings the piece of um, how to build this like toolkit for a mainstream class and a fully self-contained class. And Annalisa brings the piece of um, undoing and unlearning ableism and biases and different things. And then on top of that, I'm trying to think through what else that we have on our website, because there's a lot there. Um, But the other thing that I focus on too is how music changes the brain, neuroplasticity, um, Mm -hmm. and just the power of hope in our work um, and what that looks like and how to create a culture of hope um, in the classroom to shift our classrooms from hierarchical um, thinking to an interconnected space. Um, so that kind of is it in a nutshell. That's a lot, dude. Oh, man. That's a lot. <laughs> great. It's great. I know it's an, it's like a whole lot of information. Um, it's all really excited. I'm finding myself. It's kind. 
Beth and I have been doing this for three years now, this podcast. And we talk to a lot of different people about a whole bunch of different topics. Yep. Um, And it's pretty rare that I find myself feeling personally uncomfortable. And I am at this moment feeling uncomfortable. And it's probably because what I really want to ask, I'm nervous to ask. Oh, just ask. I don't have the words. I feel like I didn't. Well, I mean, the honest truth is I never in my music education was ever in a space that wasn't absolutely ableist. Um, I was never surrounded by musicians who had any special needs that you could discern. Uh, beyond what we see a lot in the music classroom, which is just general um, spectrum. Mm-hmm. Students on the spectrum. I think music teachers are pretty well equi- equipped for that, generally speaking, um, because students on the spectrum are so drawn to music class. Right. And, um, and, I, and I'm, I'm not sure that, well, I'm actually positive that there's more that we could do to um, uh, prepare music teachers in college to be dealing with any number of special needs. But, um, but there's really only been two times in my career where I had to change what I had planned to do or how I had planned to do it to serve, to, to think through that scenario and, and, and how to accommodate for a student twice in a very long career have I actually had to change my way of doing and being and so I'm just not equipped I don't know the words I know there's legality around these situations that makes me nervous I don't and I but what I do know is that I am now at a place in my career where um I want every student who would like to be in our class to be there. And because of that, have removed every single uh, admission requirement to a class beyond very basics, like what grade are you in? (laughs) Um, And that I know that there are really good reasons that um, families do not disclose special needs and paperwork. Um, but when I was confronted with three, um, very tricky scenarios, I was felt, I I was feeling anger that, um, I felt kind of set up for me and my teachers to fail a child because we couldn't plan, Mm -hmm. um, And I don't love that anger was my first response. Um, I mean, the family didn't feel that. It was just me being mad. But (laughs) I just, we hold ourselves like to really high standards on serving kids. How have I, how have I been doing things this long that I wasn't prepared? You know, Kelly, I have a theory. I have a theory. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Okay. Um, We've probably not been adequately serving kids in the past oh I'm sure of it probably were um like okay with it because we didn't know better yeah Um, and I think that you know we've grown as adults we've grown as educators we've grown as music um music educators in specific um and we now know things have happened in our world where we have a new way of thinking about things. And now we know that we've got to change in order to serve the students adequately. Yeah. Well, and I think (laughs) the part of the work that that, um, we do at StringRise in our workshops is we we make room for people to process mm-hmm. being new at this. Um, because if, you know, anger or shame or frustration 
is, is if you're not allowed to have that feeling in that space, then I feel like it's going to make it harder for you to get clarity on how to do the work. Um, and so we actively actually had a conversation about in our PD, making room for that as the, at the forefront um, of the PD in Annie's uh, workshops. Um, so that when you're preparing the toolkit, that you have an emotional framework. And then part of my work with the trauma piece is uh, working with teachers on their own regulation as mm -hmm. well. So that because you can't be a regulated figure in the classroom if you're not understanding your own responses, right? So even being able to identify the feeling in your own body, Kelly, I felt anger. Oh, I felt, yeah. That's just, a, that's a part of the processing that helps you get through the fact that you wanted to do a good, uh, good by these students. And maybe you felt powerless. Maybe you felt like yourself underserved to, through, you know, the entire uh, system. And, and that anger, you know, when you look at the patterns of um, activism and how social change happens, actually anger is one of those driving forces that gets things done. So it doesn't well, always well, then I'm getting a that. bunch of shit done out in the world, Nicole, because <laughs> I'm pretty pissed off a lot of the time. <laughs> but it doesn't have to be a bad emotion. No, it doesn't have to be. I don't like labeling our emotions as bad and good as our experience as educators. Well, um, I mean, to that point also, um, both of you as, as parents can probably um, empathize with a parent who may choose not to provide that information up front um, because there's emotional, there's emotional baggage that goes with having a child with special needs and probably being like pretty damn uh, adamant and maybe even angry about like, I want my kid to be served. Yeah. I want my, I just need my kid to be served, you know? And I think sometimes parents just in order to, they're desperate to get their kid what the kid needs and yeah. what other kids get. And we've got to be able to empathize with folks um, and understand why they might withhold information. Yeah. Yeah, and I think developing the, the the one thing I've seen Annie Ray do and um and that I've done, you know, in my work and the things that I've learned, you know, when I didn't speak Spanish and I had to figure out how to connect with families and parents is that, you know, that relationship piece, you know, is really powerful. And I I saw that playing out when Annie and I had a lot of discussion uh, and we were working on on things together that there was a, a relationship that was built there. Um, but I think that by, um, making it known that your classroom is also intended for students with disability and that it's, it, you know, using those words, uh, creates already an invitation, mm -hmm. uh, that may already create, you know, safety, um, in those ways. Cause I think it's as a parent, for me, my first priority is always to protect my child. That's my instinct. Um, and so whatever the motives are of the parents, I can feel empathy like you, you're talking about um, in those things. And of course, the student um, only functions as a child in that space. Um, but I think where, where programs in general can do better is by creating intentional statements and inviting mm -hmm. um, you know, students with disabilities to be involved in the program, whether it be self-contained, whether it be in a mainstream class and being, you know, we need more, teachers need more tools on differentiating learning, modifications, um, and how, how to structure the classroom in those ways um, so that everybody can be successful. So we all need training in this. We do not like get enough. In a lot of training. And day one, you know, day one of teaching, you look at those rosters and there are so many special needs students, 504s, IEPs, yeah. 
we need to know how to serve them. I didn't even know what a 504 or an IEP was when I started teaching. And yet there were several <laughs> students on your list. Several mm -hmm. in each class. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and, um, and one of the things that um, it, Annie goes through is I'm packing an IEP. Oh, wow. Um, and how to go through through that. And actually, Annalisa covers a lot of the history of the legality piece um, and all of that. So we, we really tried to put together something very holistic so that teachers walk away feeling extremely prepared, um, you know, yeah. out, out of this. So, um, but I, I think- used to, yeah. After that first, like, what's an IEP and a 504? And, oh, I'm like supposed to- I have to, not just supposed to modify My what law. I'm doing. Um, once I discovered <laughs> that that was a thing, I, um, even though I carried 350 students, I um, would go to the review meetings of the paperwork. And I found that to be such an important use of time. Mm -hmm. um, because it was a chance for the whole team that includes family and admin and, um, like their case service, manager. Yeah. A case manager at school to really talk about, um, like making smart choices, like what's going to work, what's going to work for your kiddo. What's an appropriate modification. And, and, I felt empowered in those meetings because um, what I sort of understood the case to be was that like, um, like I felt like, I, I felt embarrassed saying, I don't know if we can, if I can make that accommodation. Like for example, proximity. This mm -hmm. was the one that was always tricky for me. You've got a drummer but the modification in their paperwork is proximity. Well, in a music classroom, the drummers are in the very back as absolutely far away as you could be. And, but I'm really concerned about moving the drummers up to the front. And, but I also have students like in the first couple rows who've got a proximity thing too. And like, how do you even rearrange your classroom for sound that's appropriate? And what I, anyway, what I discovered in those meetings was that caseworkers were saying, that's not an accommodation that you can provide. And I was like, oh, like, okay. So maybe it's a different instrument we wanna play, or maybe it's yeah. a student who's not sort of moving through the pathway as other students so that we can accommodate or make different accommodations. And that um, conversation was so important. And it like puts your mind at ease when you're sitting there with the team. I mean, as, as a music or arts teacher, I have experienced so many times in these IEP meetings, just like, thank you for providing this for my student. Mm -hmm. Thank you for providing this for these kids, you know, um, and just how much families and the teachers and the case managers appreciate the opportunity for the student to be involved in the arts. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that, um, like it's the IEP piece. I had a student when I was, um, originally starting back at the program in East Dallas, who um, whose application had been rejected because her reading scores were, I mean, just like as low as they could have been. And this was a student who had been diagnosed um, with dyslexia. Now, it was incredible actually, because when she played the violin, she said that she began to feel like the, the process of tracking with note reading was changing her brain. Like she, this was something a fourth grader communicated to me. Wow. She, was processing with me, right? And she so she's saying, and I can tell that my reading is getting better. And I said, well, let, I need to, let's look into your, I'm gonna look into the IEP and let's find out, I'm gonna find out what happened, what's going on with your test or whatever. 
turned out that something had been overlooked, that she was supposed to have the test read out loud to her, mm. but it didn't happen. I was just going to say, there is always a modification for dyslexic students and test taking. Right. Even yeah. I know that. <laughs> and, yeah. it and it didn't happen. And so oh. what we were able to do was we went to the, the district and we said, hey, um, you know, obviously it's too late to retake the test, but she didn't receive this modification. Um, that's why these scores are so low. Will you accept her um, and listen? Will you listen to her play? And then will you accept her? She got in and not only did she get in, but, uh, uh, you know, the Dallas Symphony Orchestra ended up giving her lessons as well. And she's thriving and oh, she's, great. she's doing amazing. And so the IEP gave us a framework for advocacy as well. Um, in that so you know when we miss something to be able to also go back to that that place point but even to the point of you know the 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 drummer maybe they can't be come close to you but that doesn't mean that um, you can't go visit them either um, you know in terms of proximity as you're moving around the room or working with students um, you know so there's a lot of different ways I think to to modify in a classroom and I think that whatever ways we modify as long as we're holding success as the priority and and I love what Annie does because she talks about how success can look different for students and yes. and how to define that that kind of success um which is really powerful and so um yeah I think it's just a really important conversation but then also teachers need that practical those practical tools and I think that when I don't know when for you when you when you went into teaching uh, in your first couple of years if you can remember what do you feel like was consuming you the most in those in those first few years well for me it was a trying to like adhere to the structures that I thought I was supposed to adhere to I was like this is what orchestras do so I need to do this um and it's interesting, like when you're trying to build quote unquote excellence in like the Eurocentric orchestral patriarchal the perfectionist outcome is perfectionist manner. Yeah, there's um, you end up like cringing or like worrying when there's a, a maybe a special needs student that uh wants to be a part of it because because are they going to ruin the sound you know and so you work really hard to like figure out a place for this person to come and be a part of things but not quote unquote ruin the sound you know yeah and that's like a super toxic trait of orchestras man <laughs> yeah concert bands and jazz bands too yeah and then, more it's very interesting you know because like we said the success um you know there's a difference this is something that I'm uh, I was just having a conversation the other day about not utilizing modification as a way to lower your expectations mm, as a right. way to give up right so but also making sure that when we modify, we're, we're still thinking sequentially and pedagogically through that process so that we're not trying to quick fix something, but we're thinking se sequentially through that. And what I like about what Annie, I sat through her ASTA presentation and it was really uh, very moving to be there. And then the next slide to see my box instrument kids on that. And I'm, I'm just like, was very moved by how she went through the process in the self-contained room because they eventually, move those students into uh, the, they were performing with mm -hmm. regular students and they were able to, they had to go through a process because mm -hmm. they had to be able to tolerate sound. They had to be able right. to, you know, there was a whole process of going through this because these were students that were cat they had severe disabilities. Mm -hmm. uh, so she moved them through that process and then was able to even work with them on note reading through color coding and all kinds of really amazing stuff. And they were using open strings um, to match the chord progressions and the rhythmic associations that were going on. Exactly. You know, Kelly and I have a saying that we like to tell people, the kids can play. The kids can play. <laughs> the kids that can play. Not, that is not the issue here. 
the, the kids we're gonna get the, the music's gonna happen that, yeah that, that's not the issue here folks there are a lot of other things to be worrying about but that's not the one the kids can play <laughs> the kids can play and let's like get out of the way and also what i noticed once i got over like my you know young i need to be like everyone else phase um i realized that the kids are very fiercely supportive of each other um in a lot of um senses and especially with um special needs students the kids know and the kids are absolutely ready willing and able to um have anyone with special needs join mm -hmm. and be an authentic part of the group yeah absolutely and i think that you know even uh you know part of the work that i do with the, with the trauma piece is um even utilizing the techniques the things that we do in the classroom to create like unity regulation mm -hmm. Yes, um, you know, and and getting students aligned, turning students towards each other. There's yes. so much power in the peer-to-peer -peer mentoring model. Um, you know, on making sure that all, you know, for me and my philosophy, I didn't have any students with um, any physical limitations um, while I was at Ubuntu, um, like like the students that were Cat B students um, that Annie was working with, but I had a lot of students that had ADHD, mm -hmm. dyslexia, a lot of trauma, um, fetal alcohol syndrome, mm -hmm. uh, some different, different things like that going on. And for me, my philosophy was we all get it. We all move together through this. Mm -hmm. And so if we have students here that are, that are struggling, we're going to turn towards each other. And it was really beautiful. I saw an example, one of the students had had to, to be pulled out of strings to go to tutoring uh, and she was uh, having really hard time with her reading and she came back and she had missed a, you know a day and she came back the next day and we had made significant progress in the class and I could feel the self-defeat you know from mm -hmm. her of, of that yeah. and I we normalize in our classroom like assistance and and mm -hmm. struggle mm -hmm. we normalize that and so um while everybody was playing, I went to her and I said, do you want me to see if anybody can hang out and do a peer-to-peer -peer mentoring with you this afternoon and see if you could get it? And she said, yes. And this boy behind her jumped up before I could even finish. He was eavesdropping and he jumped up and he was like, I'll do it. And then she said, we'll go call my mom right now. And they like ran out I was like, before I could even give them permission, they were very empowered. I was like, I'm not stopping this. So they go out, they get, they get it. And then I had my next class coming because it was an after-school setting. So we're wrote, so we were, the, the class had been dismissed. They were working um, with an adult in the hallway who didn't know strings, but was an aide. Um, mm -hmm. so just watching them work. And I'm working with the other class and they basically kick the door down. Like, <laughs> like, and they, they come into the room and they're like, shame. And they're screaming. They're like, yeah. she got it. And I said, well, let's play it. Let's hear you play it. Do you want to play it for everybody? And she plays it. And she was so proud and everyone was beaming. And that moment of disempowerment turned to empowerment because the culture of the room was invested in everybody's success. Yeah. Um, it's not an option. Like success is not, it's a right. Success yeah. is a right. Um, and when you make that a culture of the classroom, the students will invest in each other um and that hierarchy it just gets completely dismantled yeah I think the students like in general in other areas of their schooling um work on this kind of behavior too and I think we need to recognize this as music educators that our students are they come equipped to be like amazing amazing collaborators and helpers and um mentors to each other and um, it is a, I believe sometimes it's an issue of we need to get out of the, get the hell out of the way, get over ourselves, get over our egos, get over the hierarchical 
like things that uh, we've been trained to believe are valid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, and kind of take take one from the kids' playbook because the kids are um, they're doing it at this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I really love that story. I have like 10 hours of questions um, <laughs> that I'm going to pause um, because I would like to hear more about this trauma scenario. Yeah. It feels like something I've never even heard a music teacher talk about before. Yeah. Okay. Well, let, uh, let me, before I forget, let me just give everybody a peek so they can see what these kids look like. Um, Those are cool. All right, so um, a couple of things and it ties into the trauma piece too. Right. So the first thing is that they are buildable. The reason why I made them buildable is because I wanted kids to have that hands-on investment mm-hmm. for retention purposes. Um, we would do a lot of parent meetings um, where we would have parents come and they would build an instrument with their kid. And for low SES students and students who would automatically feel marginalized from an orchestral instrument, this Mm -hmm. was a way that as a family unit, they could connect um, to this this ownership piece. Um, And so that was part of the reason why I made it buildable. Um, And then you can see that it has notches here. And so for the sound production piece, regardless of your ability, you're gonna be successful. Mm, right so if you're having trouble you know if you're if you maybe need a modification right well you're here you're set up so you're learning this this Mm -hmm. process it's not loud um under the ear and then we have for the for this um d string a string level we have this and then g string here so we're learning those techniques um and then the frog um, allows us our hands to rest um and right now this is our um the the older model frog that a lot of the inclusion teachers like. Um, but then we also have the newer frog that looks more like the, the regular frog. So we have those two options. And for me, the whole trauma piece, um, you know, when I said, talked about parsing out what was going on in that beginning string classroom, um, I remember there were certain things that I would do when I would play at home. Um, and I had to pr- I had to practice my violin actually like on the back porch, like away from everybody. Um, It wasn't like a super friendly house where people were like, oh, you know, we're so proud of you practice. But I remember feeling the um, ringtones, the sympathetic Mm. vibration against my face and it being extremely soothing to me um, in, in, you know, my, my life as a child. And I started to kind of parse out, you know, what is it that allowed me to survive the kind of trauma that I did, it was very serious trauma. What was it that allowed me to turn, to, to be able to see, because what we know about trauma is it makes you feel a, a sense of foreshortened future. Mm. Makes you feel like, and so I talk a lot about hope theory. It's one of the things that I study and I tie that into music education. So I bring those elements in there, but to see my story was very dramatically different than my sibling's story on mm-hmm. how we turned out. And knowing the what was happening in the in the music realm, that music was changing my brain. Mm. That it was the pro the process of solving a technical problem. The process of being able to do this gave me the tools to be able to survive when I left my home at 17 and trying to make a way when I didn't have support, it took me seven years to finish my undergrad degree in music. And if it hadn't have been for the tools that music had given me, I wouldn't have survived. So then I decided, um, so I, you can read my story on, on my blog. It's very personal, but I decided to put it out there that um, I had a friend, a dear friend that died of brain cancer um, and it was a couple years ago when she was diagnosed and, uh, uh, around the time, I guess it was around the beginning of the 2022, I started to feel a sense that, that she was going to be leaving us soon. It was, and it really, it really put me in a place of, I had 
function a lot from not feeling all of my emotions, but being very cut off from those things. And it, I really had to make a decision. Was I going to feel this or and honor my friend? Or was I going to stay in this place of, you know, a numb, a numbing space that was a coping mechanism? Sure. And when I started to tune into my body and into my sensations, a whole world opened up to me. And I had already been working with a therapist on doing EMDR. And that's um, basically a, a, a treatment that allows you to take fragmented pieces from trauma and synthesize it so that your brain can make sense of this, this thing. And so it already been working in the background as I was going through this. And that catapulted me into this like deep healing journey. Hmm. And so during that time when I was at launch, and I write about this, that I couldn't make sense of how I just launched this thing that I wanted to do my whole life. Mm -hmm. And now I was knee deep in trauma work. I was like, oh my gosh, like this is just not making sense to me. But to me, I, you know, felt like I'm going to make this, this has meaning and purpose. There's, it's connected to this thing and I don't know how, but I'm going to figure this out. And so for me and my research, as I started to study the nervous system, um, as I started to study how to really learn how to regulate the things that I was feeling um, and study, uh, I talk about polyvagal theory and all these really interesting things. What I started to realize is that that music itself, that, that music itself is a tool for regulation, emotional regulation. And, and one of the things that String Rise is doing right now, working on is creating a, a, a toolkit for teachers so that when they see a certain, uh, like, so if they were to take a PD from us and they would see a certain reaction from a student that looks like a certain trauma response, that they would have a technique to somatically help those students release it in the room. Wow. So that feels that, like a game changer in the, um, like it's like, it's the smartest, kindest, most musical and loving way that classroom management could exist. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and we're not doing, we're not just working with orchestra, band, choir, general music, and entire districts. Like not, not just in music spaces, but entire districts, you know, working with them on this, right? So one, you know, I have, I, I, one example would be band, my gosh, like how much breath work you're using. So mm -hmm. if I was giving a, um, you know, one of the things that I talk about with the band, with band people is, you know, that immediately when you engage your breath within milliseconds you're engaging parts of your nervous system that signal relaxation and then learning how as to have that through a trauma-informed lens is really powerful so we train teachers on that um and we're, we're there's a whole scope of things that we're, we're working on with that so that kind of dips the toe i don't know if that answers what you were hoping to hear but as you're talking i'm just the pick like uh, images and memories of different students are sort of popping yes, into my sure. head, and um, and and I and we all know that um, our students and probably ourselves have been through or are currently dealing with um, trauma, and I think music teachers would easily align or probably agree very easily that like I think we all know that just being in a music space making music with other people is therapeutic um and most of us would even advocate for um for our classes being a great choice for a student yeah um, who is dealing with trauma. I think we're probably there as a music teacher community already, but I, I know I haven't thought through a whole lot about, um, how students might show up mm -hmm. in class while they're dealing with these traumas and that maybe I might be making things worse 
I think definitely, <laughs> you know, I think definitely. I mean, I have said things that like all of a sudden I look and there's a girl in the third row of the violas crying. And, you know, um, and it's like saying something benign, but also whatever it was, was the last straw for that, that person. Mm -hmm. And like, just like having tools and techniques for, um, what do I do now? What do I do now? A, how do I not do that again? (laughs) Yeah. Like, how can I reframe whatever I just said in a way that isn't going to trigger somebody or, you know, um, or what can I do to, to help this student get services or help or assistance? Because clearly something is happening in their life right now that is making it so that they can't take on this seemingly simple thing that I said. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, is that we can't always predict what a trigger is going to be or, or no. And so, you know, in a, I think for me, the, the trauma-informed piece, you know, if I were, if we were in a workshop together would be to focus on, um, the repair, um, piece with them finding out, Hey, what, yeah, what went on? Um, because you're important to me Yeah, and it seems as if I did or said something that set off something in you and you're, you're too important to me Yeah, not find out and investigate what happened. So that way you're not reeling in the space of shame or guilt for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, because you can't always be perfect all the time for every human being. It's just too impossible, but be by, by repairing and reaching out to that student and seeing you're seeing them Mm -hmm. that act of seeing them and then validating them Mm -hmm. is such a huge piece in being trauma-informed. And that's going to break. It's going to allow that students, you know, whole nervous system to relax and then you can get to the core of it and figure out what was going on. Maybe they're feeling stressed and maybe they need a new framework and you can help them through processing those things. Maybe they do need a greater assistance, but p- being able to let that student know that you see them and validate them is half, I think, 90% of being trauma-informed in that situation. Obviously, there are a whole Rolodex of things that we can do of how we speak to students and, and, and treat them, but that's not the vibe I'm getting here. The vibe no, I'm getting and you know, you said something and it triggered her. Yeah. I yeah. really appreciate you saying like, as teachers, we also need to like deal with the fact that like, it is devastating to a teacher to be standing in front of a group of kids and then see someone start crying or have a, a triggered reaction. Um, because again, we hold ourselves to really high standards and like hurting a student is devastating to us. Mm-hmm. And um like it's it's important that we um build skills Give ourselves to, some yeah grace <laughs> but like also build skills to like have the courage to to have the the pull out conversation with that kid later, you know, and say you mean too much to me. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, you decided to go back in the back of the classroom to the girl that had been pulled out for the reading coaching. And you knew that she was on the verge of a meltdown. You knew that she was dejected and like, you could tell she was feeling really bad. And I bet that broke your heart standing there in front of the class, but you went back there and said hey what can I do um what what can we plan to make it so that you uh feel like you're up to speed and then you know cool things organically just started happening yeah so we have to have the courage to act it is not okay I don't think I don't I don't know I don't think it's okay (laughs) to just let the kid walk out the classroom at the end of class yeah one of the things that I like, so we all know, you know, as parents, right? When a kid is developing 
um, attachment and secure attachment, that attunement piece mm-hmm. is really important. And it's, it's wild. The research shows that you only need to be 30% attuned for your kid to have a secure attachment and the 70% of the times that, you know, you can miss it. So I'm like, okay, um, I'm hoping I, I get it at least like 32% of the time. And so, um, cause that will make me feel like I'm not feeling as a mom, but that attunement piece, I have twins that are very different from mm-hmm. each other, they have very different needs. I can't always be the same all the time for them. Right. But I do my best to stay attuned to them. And I, I think that there's something to, um, you know, when we, we, when we start a classroom off from the very beginning, like innately trauma-informed and it's built from this place of being trauma-informed, then we also create spaces where kids can come to us, right? And so I had a kid, this is a, a really, um, so one of the things that I talk about is um, that accountability, you know, especially when we're thinking about working with low-income kids and um, students that you know come from backgrounds where it's easy to be like we're going to boot camp them into accountability i say that's not accountability accountability (laughs) is about holding kids to their highest self their highest path Mm -hmm. and so when you are running a classroom where you're always seeing the best in them and that you're you always have that space for them where you're seeing doesn't mean that you're not frustrated doesn't mean you sometimes seeing the best in a student is being like cut it out that's absolutely not your best. Like that's also trauma informed. Mm-hmm. Keeping mm-hmm. all, you know, being I'm very firm in my classrooms. It's very predictable. It's safe yes. for students when they know that they are pushing up against the boundary and that you're firm, that is safety. And so I had a student who, bless him, I loved him in my class. He played with the biggest bows I've ever seen a student play with. <laughs> I love it. I have never windshield wipers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They were straight bows, but oh, they God, were straight. Nice, wow! Straight, but I have never seen a staccato so straight and long and fast in my life. It was beautiful, <laughs> but I was like, "Wow, okay." So as a result, he this kid to likes to shred. <laughs> a shredder and a very talented kid, but I've never seen a bow move that fast. It was like really, truly, it was astonishing, and um, he would rush. He was a rusher, right? Oh God! So, so he comes to me. And so we would work on the rushing in class. So he comes to me after school one day and he's like, miss, I need to talk to you. I said, what's up? He said, I'm thinking about quitting. And I said, why? Why are you thinking about quitting? Talk to me. And he said, well, I'm rushing a lot. And I said, well, we can fix this. Okay. We can completely fix rushing. This is not a big deal. Um, I said, but it, I don't want you to quit because when I see you, I see this future in you. And I want to be a part of that future. And I believe in you. And so when you come to me and you tell me this, you know, I start to kind of think, okay, so you're rushing. Let's, let's flip this around a little bit. It means that you like to be first. And he goes, <laughs> well, you like to be first. And I said, Actually, well, then you know what that means? You know what that means? If you like to be first, you like to be, you're a leader. And he went, well, yeah, I guess I am a leader. And I said, exactly. And I said, and those are the qualities that are important about the, we can fix the rushing, but I don't want my leader who plays with enormous bows leaving this room. So then he invests in his younger brother, his younger brother, he got his younger brother in violin. I have a video picture of them. He's fixing his younger brother's hand. But about a week later, we had a camp and I went to the, uh, went, got there early. He was sitting on the steps waiting for me. Oh my God. It's so adorable. So oh sweet. God. And I was like, wow, you really do like to be first. Then he goes off. To be- <laughs> then he goes the circle off. back. Is I know so important. like the bringing the joke back again is a real key to success here. folks. It is. So he I know. Fun. So he had graduated on and gone to the magnet art school was doing very well. And he came back to see me on site and I asked him how it was going. And he said, it was really good. And he was, then he, that was all he said. He was like, it was good. I was like, okay, I know there's more there. And he goes, well, I'm actually, I'm a concert master. (gasps) And I was like, wait, what? And so this was a kid who was going to quit, who, you know, had really, his teachers were very concerned about his future path. And had we not had that comfort in our classroom for him to be able to come to me instead of running away, but to to feel that I'm gonna offer him something safe in return. 
um, and that he's important to me, that he's worth fighting for, um, he may not have like stuck with it. And so it was really powerful. Um, and now he's in high school and he's doing really well. Um, that is so wonderful. And I'm getting old. <laughs> well, Kelly and I, um, you know, the, the thing about our situation at Washington Middle School for so many <laughs> years was that we were able to collab in this kind of intervention. Yes. And some of the best interactions with kids Ever. were done with the two of us together, mm -hmm. you know, talking each other's students off the ledge right. <laughs> or, um, you know, the safe space that we built allowed kids to own mistakes, own mess ups. We called it you beefed it. Right. And, um, also, you know, a safe space where if one student is worried about making one teacher mad, they would go to the other teacher and say, how can I deal with this? <laughs> and we, we would workshop our, our, you know, our, our, each other's students, um, in, um, all yeah, of these. what's going to be the right thing here. What's going to work. Yeah. Very, uh, very helpful. Yeah. I know, I see what time it is. I know um, that we're supposed to stop, but I just, I can, I, I have to just one thing, very, a oh. small thing. It's not off the list of the 500 questions about <laughs> modifications. And I have so many wonderings. We'll save that for another time. But I, when you, Nicole said that you ran a tight ship, I saw Beth and my, um, yes body language both of us relax quite a bit we both were kind of like a sigh of relief because at, when when we talk in these spaces about like doing the right thing for a student or like moving everyone along together and all of these like really nice kind ways of being in a classroom I think that it's possible part of our listeners sort of tune it out like, well, I mean, I run a tight ship. That's a little hippy dippy for me kind of a thing. And I start thinking, am I like, is this jive of me? Like, am I even that person? Because I run a very tight ship. Very tight ship. Very tight ship. Very, and I, yeah. But that's what I learned in my first teaching gig, which ended up being K-8 general music. And I paid literally no attention to those classes in college because there was zero chance I was ever going to do that. And then of course it was the first thing I did. <laughs> what I learned when I was teaching 42 kindergartners that you How can to run a tight find ship. and firm at the same time. And yeah. not only can you, but you have to because and in order for students to feel safe, they have to understand the parameters and the boundaries. Yep. And they have to know what to expect all the time. And Kelly and, and I are important. famous for running a tight ship together. We famous for it. <laughs> We're famous for it. There are kids that still to this day get together and talk about those days. And, you know, um, I'm just so glad you said that yes. because I, oh, yeah. It really helps me feel like I'm not actually an imposter and, and like, this is something I can continue to learn about and infuse into, um, the classes that I'm developing and that I can help teachers build these skills too. Oh yeah. I'm not a tyrant. <laughs> no. Okay. So the term that, that I came across in, in some, um, educational articles was warm, warm demander, warm demander, yes. warm demander. Yeah. And, and, so, and I was like, okay, that's me. And yeah. I'm not sure I was like a hundred percent, but this piece of predictability running this, this tight ship, ultimately, um, you know, if I let my three-year-olds run the house, it, it would be completely like, I'm already trying to keep Cheerios off the floor. Like, and that's with me running a tight ship. Um, so I can't even imagine what it would look like if I just allowed it to just be, and they would right. feel unsafe because they would feel unsafe. They were like, there's no predictability, you know? And despite when mama explains something, 
And we have, let me tell you, we're a two mom home. Whenever I set the boundary, they go, no mama. I mean, I go to mommy uh, and they've <laughs> already learned. And I'm like, that's not going to work. Like, but you can do that if you want. But having that predictability, you know, is so important for kids because their brains can relax. Yes. And it primes them to be able to learn. They and know to create. what to expect. Yeah. You know, when they push up against you, you're not budging. You're, you're a firm, you know, st- uh, like you're firm and you're planted, you're grounded and you're grounded on their behalf. And so that alone, just that framework of running a tight ship, then all you have to do is take the trauma informed pieces and just learn how to implement it. If you, if the, if the room is not running on a tight ship, that's a skill that has to be learned first yes. yeah. to me. Oh man, um, I feel so, like tremendously relieved yeah. going into this weekend now. Well, we and like we could do like a whole series of episodes with you, Nicole, but like the thing that I'm thinking about is like districts should be hiring Stringrise to come in and do some PD. Um, so those of you who are um, program directors, those of you who have budget for PD, look up Stringrise and see about getting them into um, work with your teachers um, online or in person, um, because all of these things are super important for us to authentically start learning how to do. Um, and Nicole, thank you so much for this tip of the iceberg, really type of conversation. Yeah, uh, I have a feeling, you know, Kelly's going to be contacting you probably <laughs> immediately after this. <laughs> well, absolutely. And if anybody wants to reach out to me directly, um, you know, with this, if they, if they want to go on the website, they can use our contact form, but they're also more than welcome to just email me, Nicole at stringrise.com. Um, as well. So yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thank you. You're so awesome. Thank you. And no, thank um, you. yes. And everybody have a wonderful weekend. You too. You too. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. Bye y'all. Thank you. A million thanks to our listeners, followers, and subscribers. The support we receive monetarily and otherwise helps us to be able to spend time creating a quality product and it allows us to tap into partnerships and resources to which we wouldn't normally have access. We are stoked about the journey of learning we have ahead of us and we are delighted you've decided to join.